this is Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. Today's episode is sponsored by Health Innovation Media. We bring your brand messaging live on the ground and now in the virtual space for major trade show, conference, and innovation summits via our signature pop-up studio. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, publisher of acowatch.com, and your Pop Health Week co-host with my partner, co-founder, Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health, LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Our guest on today's show is Cliff Frank, president of Healthcare Management Solutions, Inc., a managed care consulting firm located in Dunedin, Florida. Cliff is making an encore appearance on Pop Health Week and will share insights from a series of recent virtual confabs focused on reopening our health system post-COVID-19, including hospitals and physicians as they re-engage with traditional operations with a special emphasis on primary care. Cliff has more than 30 years of healthcare experience working with payers, hospitals, IPAs, PHOs, and clinically integrated networks with demonstrated abilities in managed care contracting, payer provider relationships, bundled payment design, capitation program design, and management, accountable care design and operations, and evaluation of managed care models and structures. Throughout his career, Cliff's focus has been on reducing waste and enhancing quality for the benefit of patient care. Creating clinical and financial alignment among providers and payers has been a central theme to his professional work across a variety of settings and organizations. Cliff provides leadership to clinically integrated networks operating shared savings relationships with payers and Medicare and routinely consults to organizations on their managed care contracts, strategy, preparation for provider risk transfer, and innovative payer-provider partnerships. So, Fred, over to you. Help us get to know what is on Cliff's radar these days and what he's learned from those virtual confabs. Thank you so much, Greg. And Cliff, welcome to Pop Health Week. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, We always have a fascinating discussion with you, and I know this last time, excuse me, we've got a little jet flying over right now. Uh, the Navy is doing some practicing, but I know that you just had an incredible confab. I was involved with that. And so why don't you talk a little bit about your confabs and what they are and uh, what you did this time, and then we can get into some deeper discussions on the results. So I've been doing these confabs off and on for, I don't know, 10, 12 years. And what I like to do is about once a year, get a bunch of smart people in a room that I've known for many years, and we just kind of beat up a topic or two for um, the better part of a day. Because of the uh, travel restrictions and other kinds of limitations, instead this time I did three phone calls with about eight, eight to 10 people each. It was really a lot of fun because we were, we were talking about kind of what comes next after the virus stuff settles down. People from insurance, people from providers, people from consulting firms and other kind of managed care ne'er-do-wells like me. And um, we all had somewhat similar ideas, but we all had different ideas too. So it was, it was a very good idea exchange. And we kind of ended up in some fairly common places among each other, not necessarily in agreement with kind of what's out there in the world, but definitely um, we went through kind of who wins, who loses, and what does winning look like. For some, 
entities, we think it's going to be pretty tough. And for some others, it could be could be interesting. And we all said, well, we better buy United stock. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's sort of talk about where they're at now. And I think you know it's kind of fascinating. We've had everybody you know under these shutdowns, and some hospitals did it different than others. And I know you're involved running some ACOs. So what did you hear? And what did you actually see in some of the places you're involved with in terms of what's going on in the facilities now in terms of utilization, et cetera? So utilization is down generally by half or more. And, of course, it's all the profitable utilization that is down. From a net revenue and or net profitability standpoint, it's really ugly for hospitals. What's kind of a, a separator is how those hospitals have, have dealt with it. Some hospitals have just you know, laid off everybody, laid off a bunch of people, fired doctors, cut pay on clinical staff, fired a bunch of non-clinical staff, and are just kind of trying to hunker down and muddle through. Others have been a little bit more strategic. Uh, we heard about one health system that was holding their primary care docs harmless in the in the reduction because they didn't want to kind of squander that asset. Others have gone the other way and just said, hey, you know, who's ever high paying is, you know, high paid is going to get, get the biggest whack. So it's been, nobody has gotten away with kind of not having a hit. Everybody's got a hit, but people are, various hospitals are looking at how to approach that problem very differently. There was some consensus that the strong could get stronger and the weak may die. Institutions, not people. And that that, but there was kind of a counter trend that also said, well, you know, some some health systems may really kind of have overplayed their hand in this in this roll up, and there are some new strategic vulnerabilities that they need to be uh, thinking about, particularly relative to their employed medical staff. Mm-hmm. And I think you know this focus on primary care and how some places really took a hit to them, and others took care of them is sort of a, a feature set that a bunch of people talk about in coming out of this thing, what happens with primary care, and what was the sense of the group with primary care and their relationship with hospitals? Very somber. Telehealth is a game changer uh, for several reasons. First of all, you know, we hadn't really adopted it very well, and we were there was kind of this circular argument. Well, the patients won't like it, so I don't like it. And suddenly, you know, people find out, well, when they don't have any other alternative, Telehealth, I guess, will work, and the technology works, and it isn't that hard to put in, and my God, the patients love it. They absolutely love it, even even the elderly. They can kind of do this, and the doctors, as a result, like it a lot. Well, all of that has some big implications down the road because of this. Physicians have, particularly those that went through salary cuts, or watch their brethren get terminated, have been through a culture shock. Because the reason they sold their practice or went to work for a big institution was shelter from the storm. Guess what? The storm is actually inside the building, and there is no shelter. So there are a lot of disillusioned uh, primary care physicians that work in large systems. That you know, may not be that different from what was before because there were lots of reasons for doctors to be grumpy. The difference is now with telehealth, they have these doctors have an option. They can go right to their basement, contract with American Well and a couple of other telehealth companies at 35 bucks a visit, three and a half to four visits an hour, and they can make $250,000 a year without breaking their no-compete agreement with the hospital. 
So hospitals that thought they had their primary care staff captive suddenly may find many of them going rogue. Fascinating. And I understand that you set up a telehealth system pretty quickly for your ACO or something like that. Is that true? We did for our for um, Shore Medical Center's employed medical group. We've been looking at it for like 18 months, and finally, you know, we had to do something. So we couldn't kind of dodge a decision. So in the space of 36 hours, we went from zero to, to, to 90 miles an hour without really much of a hiccup. Just, you know, hooked up the, the Zoom that has uh, security and encryption, and then um, away we went. And it's working great. So literally the physicians were able to pick up the technology and just run with it. Not a whole lot of intervention, training, or anything? Eh, half an hour worth of training apiece. That was it. That's fantastic. And they like it. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, one doctor was telling me he had the patient, a patient who was kind of complaining of shortness of breath. He said, okay, go walk up these stairs in your house and come, and, and come back. And so the patient did right there on the spot. And, you know, they, they had a further clinical dialogue that was not something you could wow. do in an office. It was amazing. And, and the good news, I guess, is he came back. And the other good news, if he hadn't, you were on the phone and you could go get something done, right? That's, that's right. That's so, right. Yeah. Ultimate assessment right there. That's fantastic. So, you know, what, what about the thinking in terms of the big players in that space? You know, the American Wealth, the Teladoc, those others that have big businesses versus you that just went out and did it you know, with Zoom, et cetera. Do you see any advantage to one or the other, or is it going to affect anything over the longer run as to what types of systems are set up or, or ultimately take, take over? There may be some shakeout in the telehealth space. I think right now there's kind of plenty of, plenty of food on the table for everybody. But what is important is really the link to my earlier comment, and that is if each health system has their own telehealth that they could essentially lock out a defector. As long as there's an American well and a bunch of others, there, there's plenty of work for primary care docs who want to migrate to some other employee or independent status. It's kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, you can drive for Uber, you can drive for Lyft, you can drive for Grubhub. You know, there's plenty of, there's plenty of business. And it uh -huh. doesn't mean you've got to work for the taxi company. Right. And over the longer term, do you think that those payment models, because obviously they said, hey, we're going to pay for this stuff at this rate, do you think they leave that and that continues on? Or do we actually create a system that's more efficient and lower those payments for uh, televisits or stuff like that? Because you may not have the big office space and the exam rooms and those kinds of things. Do we so get the, there? The margin inside primary care offices may actually go up for just that reason. They can shrink and they can actually manage more patients, particularly if they were capitated. But even in the fee-for-service world, I don't think Medicare is going to be able to retreat very much from parity. They may, they may, and the plans may move to discount the voice-only televisit and say, well, okay, that's that's not the same as a, a visual telehealth visit. So we're gonna we're gonna um, kind of create some separation in payment there. The other place I've heard some grumblings about is that there are certain kinds of visits that really are not great for telehealth, like physical therapy. That needs to really be a visual, in-person, laying-on-hands visit. 
So they may stop paying for, you know, uh, uh, those kinds of visits. But in the, in the mainstream in terms of primary care and maybe uh, a lot of the internal medicine subspecialties, I think telehealth is here to stay. And I think if somebody tries to mess with it, there, there will be a consumer backlash. Wow. Yeah, that's a fascinating insight about physical therapy because right now one of the hottest so-called areas of musculoskeletal care is moving it to virtual. Well, what I'm, what I'm hearing from the plans is they don't understand that value not possibly be the best thing. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. Our guest is Cliff Frank, president of Healthcare Management Solutions, a managed care consulting firm located in Dunedin, Florida. So there is probably some education which needs to be done of the plans to make sure that it that, that telehealth sticks in those areas where the plans are skeptical. You also mentioned capitation. And it seems to me an obvious deal that those who were in these prepaid models or risk-based models were probably better off for service model. One, is that the case? And two, does that quicken the movement to those types of payment models? Well, one thing that helps in a crisis is cash. And these capitated physicians who are you know, have a big chunk of patients have cash to work with. Those that kind of either dabble in it or don't have it at all are really kind of strung out on the fee-for-service nickel that is getting scarce in today's world. The thing about a capitated model is that it's not a revenue play at that point, except for how many patients can you really handle. It's really more of a cost management play, both uh, uh, downstream cost management and cost of managing your own patients. And to the extent that patients don't need to come into the office, but they can be managed telehealth, that lowers a physician's costs of doing business and enhances quality because they can make that outreach more often mm-hmm. without, it, uh, without it generating a lot of costs or a lot of friction from the member. So mm-hmm. everybody seems to be pretty happy with the telehealth component of this, particularly mm-hmm. as, it, as it relates to lowering costs and being kind of the the next substitute for the in-person office visit. It's more efficient. It's more, you know, a, a working person ha- has a better, better access because they don't have to take off work or pick up their kid at school or anything else. And particularly if things can be done in the off hours, it really makes for a better quality of clinical experience. And, and speaking of this issue of, of global cap. And for those primary care physicians or other groups that might be in a global cap environment, what's going to be the thinking? Because we know they've shut off all these so-called elective or, or types of procedures. So clearly, if you're globally capitated and that's part of your bundle in that cap, you don't have those expenses. Is there going to be any discussions, you think, among the health plans and providers that, wait a second, you actually had a windfall because people just didn't go in for surgery? I don't think so, but I think the contract renewal negotiations could get a little bit, a little bit tougher. However, that being said, remember, there are these medical loss ratio requirements. So where if the medical spending on medical services falls below 80% of, of total premium, the plans have to give back money. Well, when the provider is not capitated, but it's all fee for service, the plans, and, and there's this dip, 
the plans mm-hmm. are going to have to give back a bunch of money. So right. either way, the plans weren't going to be able to keep this all this money that they were that that they're not spending. It's going to go back in either better benefits or it's going to go to to providers as earned income. All that's just fine mm-hmm. with me. I think it's reasonable. So what what does it look like, and what does the group think it looks like coming out of this? Is there a bunch of pent up demand? Are, are the, ER, the ORs going to be flooded? Are people afraid to come? What was the sense? So there is a huge disconnect between those in the, in the medical side or provider side and everybody else. The providers are well aware of hundreds of patients who, who need to come in, who've said they're coming in, and you know, we can't wait. We'll run 24, uh, 24-7 to meet, those, meet that backlog. There are a lot of us who are kind of keen observers who don't think that's going to happen. There will be a little backlog, but there are lots of reasons why people aren't coming back at the rate that that hospitals are are expecting or hoping. A lot of people don't have jobs, so they don't have money or insurance. A lot of even those that do don't don't want to take time off. A lot of the reasons why the surgery may have been necessary may have self-resolved or the patient got sick or died so they're no longer a candidate for surgery. And the last thing is who the hell wants to go to a hospital that was full of virus last month and may or may not be all that clean. Lots of reasons why the rebound or snapback may kind of be a build back rather than a snapback. If that's the case, providers, both uh, medical, I mean, uh, both physician and hospitals, are going to see a lot more financial pain. Does, do you think this will lead to some changes in terms of, you mentioned some of the really big systems maybe having a bit of a struggle because that, does it lead to some change in, in how the hospitals think going forward or do they well, just continue on and try to crank some volume? I think those that are kind of volume plays and leverage plays with the market will try that again. I don't know that it's going to work as well as it has in the past for the simple reason that employers now are going to be desperate to save money because a lot of them are just this close to going out of business. I think we're going to see a lot more development and implementation of narrow networks. And, you know, narrow networks can be built around one system. They can be built around best of breed in a particular market. But however it's done, there are going to be a whole lot of systems or a whole lot of providers that get cut out of these new deals. And when that happens, that build back, that snap back, even if it's a slow rise of activity, may not happen. And the leverage that, that large plan, large health systems thought they had in the market may turn out to be more imagined than real. In terms of those narrow networks, what happens to those center of excellence models like Walmart was using? I think the model could, could be kind of replicated on a local basis where, where like Cleveland Clinic could actually kind of, and they've done this, they franchised their designation and their model so they could actually publish their criteria and coach up a system that could then go back to Walmart and say, okay, we've now got these 18 different systems that are, that are Cleveland Clinic branded and you can get the same kind of conservative um, analysis and good clinical approach in those places as well as ours so you don't have to travel so much. 
Mm-hmm. How does the public come out of this thing, or what, or, or, or where do they fit in this post-COVID? I I think that's a little bit unclear. With telehealth, clearly the patients win. I mean, it's it's so much more convenient. The cost is you know fairly fairly well managed. So I think telehealth is a big big win for. Some of these other things, you know, as the hospitals get trouble, get in trouble, access may become more of an issue. Pricing may get get really goofy because a lot of hospitals may come back and and demand more money from plans rather than less to make themselves, you know, to cut, cover their hole in their but in their um, income statement. But plans are not necessarily in a mood to kind of say, well, yeah, we'll be your bailout. So I think in rural health, there's a, a crisis of access coming. In urban markets, it, it may not be that bad, but it's going to be different because a lot of the things that hospitals were doing to compete, now you know, they may actually have to collaborate to do things systemically across the city as, and, and eliminate duplication and other kinds of added costs without adding value. Are there any specialties over the next, you know, post this that will be harder hit or that the group felt might struggle more than others? Anesthesia is not going to be a good place because mm-hmm. surge, as surgery comes down, they get, they're, they're the first ones that, that feel it. Interestingly, ER is way down. It's like down by half on strokes and heart attacks and other things that you would expect would still come. So where all that's going is not clear, but they are ER specialty is struggling mightily at this point. And anything that kind of is hospital dependent is is likely to have a problem if they've got other lower cost alternatives like let's say orthopedic surgery or radiology or something like that. You know, they they can move to those lower cost settings. I think I think hospitals are going to have a lot of pressure like on the uh, side of service issues and, and, and other things where, where the hospitals make a good nickel. Every place they're making money, they're getting hammered. There is no shelter anymore. What about the issue of VC with these doctor ER groups and others? Is, that, is this going to put a nail into that business? I would say it depends. And it kind of depends on the philosophy. The, the orientation, these single specialty roll-ups, like to roll up GI docs or orthopedics or, or OBGYN, that were all predicated on essentially building volume, building market leverage, and getting better, better rates from, from the market. I think those plays are dead. Private equity-backed organizations are, as, as some in our group reported, are shaking in their boots because they can't figure out how they're going to get to next Tuesday. With the with the plate with everything locked down, and then when it comes back, it's not going to come back that strong. And if it does come back, there's there's a lot of costs that have to be covered. On the other hand, those venture backed or private equity backed organizations that are trying to manage Medicare risk through really effective primary care and other support supportive either technologies or clinical delivery systems could find themselves in a very good position because there'll be lots of doctors spinning out of hospitals that want some place to land that's kind of oriented toward the future, not the past. 
Fantastic. Well, Cliff, it's really been great having you on again today, and I hope you continue to stay safe. We really should get you back on because there's a whole lot more we could get into. We didn't touch anything about, you know, the insurance folks, all the people losing insurance and how that impacts it, but clearly it's going to be an interesting time as we come out of this. So thanks again for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's always mine. I'll do anything for an audience. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Chris. Okay, Chris, and I'll turn it back over to you, Greg. And thank you, Fred. That is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Cliff Frank, president of Healthcare Management Solutions, Inc., a managed care consulting firm located in Dunedin, Florida, for sharing his time and insights today. For more information or to follow Cliff's work, go to www.clifffrank.com. For Pop Health Week, my colleague Fred Goldstein and Healthcare Now Radio, this is Greg Masters saying... Stay safe, y'all. We get better together, even if virtually.